This morning's scripture reading is from the 40th chapter of Isaiah, verses 1 through 10. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. A voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And these are God's words to us this morning. We've been taking up this series that I've called from Genesis to Nazareth, so we end as we uh, approach Advent. We've looked at key theological concepts in the Christian faith, creation, sovereignty, holiness, sin and wrongdoing, and uh, we started looking at redemption last week, and today we look at part two of redemption and part one of what's called eschatology. Now, I've, I've uh, defined for you eschatology before, so I hope you remember. It is a theological word that's not often used so much, uh, except for in theological schools and the like. And you're thinking, have I come to a theology lecture? Blah, 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 and then we're done? No. Or at least not only that. You like the word redemption. It means something far beyond redeeming a coupon or some uh, free token. Redemption is the hope of the world, that even the darkness could be redeemed, that things will be good instead of bad. Redemption is a word that in Christian understanding can never uh, be fully understood without the word eschatology, because eschatology means the completion of all things, the fulfillment of all things, that history is headed somewhere. And eschatology is the study of that in Christian terms. Where is God bringing all history. Some people have understood eschatology, well, it's actually misunderstanding it, to mean end times. You're thinking about end, end times. So then you look at prophecy and the book of Revelation or whatever. End times is far too small of a concept for eschatology because eschatology doesn't mean end times. It means the completion of things, the fulfillment. Now, what could possibly matter to you about these things? Now, I'm hoping this will work and it might be better if you close your eyes and listen because we've got a picture of George Handel up there and you might be looking, oh, it's interesting clothes that they used to wear back in the day. But really what I want you to listen, to, what I want you to do is listen to the comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. The beginning of Isaiah chapter 40. We hear that.
ye my people. It's the beginning of Isaiah chapter 40. And I'll add context to it for you. These words, when first heard, were written to a people cut off from the promise of their lives. A people judged for their sin. A people feeling no comfort at all. Between Isaiah chapter 39 and Isaiah chapter 40, and this is why those who are uh, biblical students, students of Scripture, uh, will struggle with the book of Isaiah in at least a couple of fronts. And one of them is, who wrote the book of Isaiah? And in biblical studies, you hear of three Isaiahs, that there must be at least kind of three people who were contributing to the writing of the book of Isaiah. One of the reasons that biblical scholars feel that is the length of time in which the book was written. There are 150 years between Isaiah chapter 39 and Isaiah chapter 40. God seems absent. God seems silent, distant at least. And then the people hear the words, Comfort ye, comfort ye. It doesn't take too long, we'll hear it again. Now you have the context. The people who for so many years had understood God as only as only as distant. Now I'm going to mention something that I think you've already done because I know how self-centered we all are. I could have said I know how self-centered you all are, but I'll throw myself in there too. When you hear the word comfort, you think of your own life. Not so much what the Israelites were going through between Isaiah chapter 39 and Isaiah chapter 40. You think of the comfort that you need in your own life, your own challenges, responsibilities, and stress the demands upon you, the things that you're thinking of for this week, the things you're thinking of for the future, loss, pain, fear, and angst. You listen again to the words, comfort ye, comfort ye. You close your eyes, you hear the words. And you can think of, and we spoke about this last week when we started talking about redemption, thinking even of your own sin, your own ignorance, and your own wrongdoing. And then you hear, it's the last time we'll listen, then you hear the words again. Over the desolation, even of your own doing in your life. Their sin, and they hear these words. Your sin, and you hear these words of comfort.
writes that, that her warfare is accomplished. In Scripture, that her iniquity is pardoned. God has something more. He has redemption. The promises for last week when we outlined the nature of redemption, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, that no hurt or harm will come on my holy mountain. Think of these promises in light of events maybe in your own life, but certainly in light of events in this, in this world this week, in France, in Lebanon. No hurt or harm on my holy mountain, a promise of peace. And then this almost overwhelming promise, I will give you a new heart, I will make you clean. And you know, don't you, that that is the only hope of this world. You know the problem of thinking that all we need to do is deal with the sin of the other person. The need of this world is that our hearts would be clean. We'd be given a new heart, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. This world, and I choose this language purposefully, this world is not headed nowhere. Not in God's light and presence. We could say that we don't go for all of that theological blah, blah, blah. Perhaps not. But I know this of each of you. I know you have a need of peace. Why does it sound so good when we hear the words of comfort? Because it's like somebody who has authority saying to you, it's okay. It will be okay. It's okay. It will be okay. There is redemption in the words of the text. Speak ye comfortably. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And proclaim to her that her warfare is accomplished. It's ended. That her iniquity is pardoned. So a few observations about redemption from this text and from Scripture as a whole. Between Isaiah chapter 39 and Isaiah chapter 40, there are 150 years. When we consider redemption, when you consider the need of redemption in your own life, this means salvation, sure, but it also means that God has promised to redeem all things, redeem difficulties in your family, redeem mistakes of your past, redeem your own sin, restore the years that the locusts have eaten in the words of the book of Joel. When we consider redemption, and this is a hard truth first, we are often confronted by the painful delay of God's action, the seeming, the experienced delay of God's action. For these people, there were 150 years, as I've said, between chapter 39 and chapter 40 of Isaiah, even as these words were first heard. We considered some time ago recently the story of Moses speaking to the burning bush and God saying about the people who had been slaves in Egypt, who were still slaves in Egypt, Moses, I have seen, I have heard, I will come down. And what would one of Moses' first questions be? What would one of your first questions be? Why did it take this long? You are not the first. Please hear this. You are not the first to experience this delay between God's promise and the working out of God's promise. Two weeks ago, Grady Bueller spoke to us uh, on the story of the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. 
Jesus was a friend of Lazarus. We hear that Jesus wept at the tomb and raged at the tomb. But the question remains, why did Jesus not show up earlier? He knew about the condition of Lazarus. If you had only come earlier, said Lazarus' sister. In the text in that story, we're told, and it's in Scripture, that when Jesus heard about Lazarus' impending death, this is what the text says, he waited for two days. Now you, I know you, and I know what I can be like. You would accuse such a friend friend of not being a friend at all. When I was in need, well, I know who my real friends are. They show up. And Jesus didn't show up until it was too late, seemingly. He waited. This seeming delay can so often be a part of what we experience as redemption. What kind of friend is this? What kind of savior is this who doesn't solve right away the things that we think should be solved in our own lives and in this world? You have prayed for days for something to change. There are people in this room right now who have prayed for decades for something to change. For loved ones, for healing for peace of mind, for an answer, for comfort instead of pain. The question is present in Scripture. This should be a comfort to us. It doesn't change things. But God doesn't shy away from this even as He speaks His own redemption. The question over and over again asked in Scripture, Why so long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? I don't have an answer for you to why this delay seems to be present so often but I can at least tell you that it's in Scripture. If God is good all the time, and I say that and I believe it, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. And we say that with and among people who can be experiencing tremendous pain. If it's not you, then you know someone who has prayed for for healing from a debilitating pain, for a family member caught in addiction, for the faith of a loved one who seems to have No faith at all. Why? But it's not so much the why that is the problem. It's how long, O Lord. And every answer that you give to someone in such a circumstance is only a maybe. And the maybes can hurt. Maybe God is trying to cure us of impatience. Maybe there's something for us to learn. Maybe his plan is bigger than our request. But they're all maybes. At least this, the Bible doesn't shy away from. Even when Scripture speaks of redemption and the completion of all things, the Scripture acknowledges this necessary, or necessary is my editorial comment, the Scripture acknowledges this waiting. Already, but not yet. Romans 8, the whole creation groans. groans and anticipates this redemption. And it's from that then that you hear the words. Will you hear them? Even in the longing. Because for these people, as they heard the words, they didn't know the redemption yet, the working out of redemption. The words came first. Comfort ye. Comfort ye, my people. 
It's a matter of faith to be able to hear these words. And some in our, our company can't hear them. Sometimes you pray for somebody else in the church or a friend that you know. You pray because they can't feel this or know this. Comfort, comfort my people. I pray this way for many of you. I take up the how long on your behalf. That's one hard truth to consider about redemption. But a second is this, that we are not alone, that God is with us in our pain and our sorrow and our waiting, even in our suffering. This is something that seems fairly unique to Christianity in in, uh, comparison or thought to other religions, that God is not distant from us in our suffering, but enters into our suffering. This we know, the fulfillment of this in Jesus Christ, who takes on all the sin and pain and darkness of the world on the cross. But we know it even in the Old Testament. After this portion of Isaiah in chapter 40, we have Isaiah chapter 42 and following Isaiah chapter 53, where scholars will tell you that these words are speaking about someone called the suffering servant. And different people will understand these uh, scriptures differently, whether they're Christian or not, whether they're looking from a Jewish perspective or a Christian perspective. But these are the words, chapter 42. Behold my servant, my spirit's upon him. He will bring justice. That sounds like someone who's going to come and just, you know, take over and wipe all the bad out, right? He will bring justice, but listen, he won't cry aloud or lift up his voice, but he won't grow discouraged until he's brought justice to the earth. Chapter 53, verse, chapter 53, the suffering servant. Now you know these words. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, He has, now hear this, now please hear this over your consideration of the events this week in our world. He was despised and rejected, rejected, acquainted with grief. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our iniquities. The whole of chapter 53, Christians can see the sacrifice of Jesus the cross, even his burial. If you want, and this, I know, I even have this in me, and I'm probably less like this than than some others, but if you want a marauding, crusading, triumphalist faith where God shows up and starts shooting and destroys all the baddies, Christianity is not that faith. Redemption and eschatology in Christian faith, it is in the self-emptying love of Jesus Christ. His suffering, the cross. We move from the manger at Christmas when we hear God's name. God's very name is what? Jesus' name is Emmanuel, God with us. It's not just a name, it's a declaration that he has come into this darkness and even experienced it and even suffered under it. To the cross at Easter, all of the darkness that there ever was, Jesus takes on. We have to mature in our Christian faith and ask, what does this mean for us in this world? How are we to live in the light of some of the the terrible darkness in the world? I hope we seek to live in a Christ-like way. Thirdly, and if you've experienced the comfort of Jesus Christ, the comfort of redemption in your life, This is a call for you and for me. We are called to be witness to the redemption in Jesus Christ. 
This text, every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill made low. There's a voice of one crying, a voice of one crying. In the wilderness, make a highway for our God. Now, who is this referring to? In Christian understanding, that voice becomes John the Baptist, the one who prepares the way for Jesus Christ. The voice crying in the wilderness, or the voice crying in the wilderness, make a way. A witness to Jesus Christ. I want to show you this painting. It's really tough to see. I can see it better back there, actually. You can turn around and look back there if you like. See how there's a monitor back there? See how the colors are brighter? Now I'm making an ad for our new projector. You can't see anything up here. This is part of what's called the Isenheim altarpiece. And uh, one of my favorite theologians kept this on his desk. Just this section of it, the crucifixion section. It's a much bigger piece. The figure there, and it's, you know, it's that old style painting where it looks like, that just looks a little bit creepy at the same time. But the, the, the figure in the red with his finger pointed out, pointing to Jesus Christ, that's John the Baptist. John is a witness to the light, and his finger is pointing to Jesus. He has an open Bible in one hand, and in the painting, in between, right in here, this space, there's actually words written in the painting. And the words are part of Scripture, John chapter 3, verse 30. He must increase, I must decrease. John is pointing to Jesus. This is the truth of the Christian faith. It's still this way, it's always been this way, and it, re- and it will remain this way. That the world hears the truth of redemption through witness. John is a witness to the redemption that is coming in Jesus Christ. You walk along a busy street, you stop and look up, This has been tried now so often that people don't fall for it so much anymore. But if you can gather a few people to look up, you're sure to gather others who are walking by, who can't help themselves, who stop, look up as well, and say, what are you looking at? Even if you know what's happening, even if, you know, I I arranged it so that 40 of us here in this room, and they tell you, there's nothing to look at, but we all start going like this, you're going to be tempted to look. In Christian faith, the truth is this, that we believe what we believe and know what we know only through witness, through testimony. We are to be witness to redemption in Jesus Christ. And so the question for you is this. This is a hard question. And I hope you experience it as some of you as somewhat a conviction. Have you actually seen or heard anything from God worth testimony to another person? Are you experiencing in your life the presence of God in such a way that that is worth testimony to another person? Redemption in our lives means the consideration of what God has done, what God is doing, how we live in the midst of challenges and sorrow and loss, living even in relation to ourselves, being honest and realistic in our own failings, and considering our own limitations, knowing that redemption is more, that my eyes are not on simply something like, well, let's throw one out there that's just contemporary in our culture. My eyes are simply not on something that the whole world values like money. But my value is something else. 
I mean, I know it's true to say, we need to teach people the value of money. I, I understand that. There's some even biblical precedent for that. I think we're too good at teaching people the value of money. We teach people that money is the value overall. What about the value of self-sacrifice? We need to live as Christians as if we truly believe in the redemption of Jesus Christ. That we know it. That our hope lies nowhere else. This is what I've called before becoming an eschatological people. Eschatology is not about charts and graphs to figure out when Jesus is coming back, when the Bible told us in the first place we can't figure that out. But rather knowing in our daily lives that God is the God over all history, His love and compassion, that there is hope that this history is headed somewhere. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we have the first fruits of this salvation unto whole, eternal, and abundant life. In Scripture, the words are this. We'll speak about this in a couple of weeks. That there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and there will be no more pain and no more sorrow and no more tears. John, in this painting, knows that this redemption comes in Jesus Christ. He doesn't understand it fully, obviously. But he points toward Jesus Christ. And he says in the scriptures, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When I was... This is an important call, the call that we are to be witness to this redemption. And when I was a young Christian, uh, zealous in my new faith, um, I, I, and in the church that I was in, I picked up a sense that, you know, you, you need to witness. Witness became like a verb somehow. You, or you need to be a witness, but you also need to witness. You can be a good witness or a bad witness. And we, we even use terms like witnessing. And so I thought witnessing was, well, I'm going to go witness now. Like I wasn't before, and now I am. Uh, it's, this, it's kind of an improper understanding of the term. But anyway, I was zealous in my faith, and I'm, I'm not fully condemning this, but, but I'm kind of embarrassed about it now. Uh, some of my friends, some of my good friends, I thought I would have to tell them uh, the truth in my mind about what they needed and how they weren't really Christian enough um, and what was wrong with them and whatever else. And it didn't last very long, that particular phase. Um, thanks be to God. But something has happened in, in churches now often where because we've, we, many of us have lived through tendencies like that, then we become embarrassed of this word witness, but it's still the hope of the world. We are to witness to the redemption in Jesus Christ. What do you do after you know, terrible events in the world? Darkness and evil. Your life is to witness to the redemption in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That my hope is in Jesus Christ, my Lord. I remember, um, it's not to go over all the terrible events, in, and I'm always, whenever I think of events like whether you think of Paris, and it's interesting, isn't it? We, we all think of Paris because we can maybe identify with the Western lifestyle a little bit more. But very many people were killed in Lebanon this week as well. It's not as natural for us to think that way. And whenever I go through, you know, events in our own history, so you go back to 9-11 or, or something like that, you, you remember the things that you can identify with more. And I remember praying at one of those times. I was a youth pastor 
uh, on, in 2001 when that happened. And I remember praying. We had a Bible study that night. It was a Tuesday, I believe. And I remember gathering for that Bible study, and, and I was praying like crazy, Lord, what is this? What's happening here? And the sense that I got in prayer from God, and I don't know, I can't, I'm not sanctifying this or whatever, but the sense that I got was God saying simply, Todd, I was there. I'm present, even in the darkness. What does it mean that you are to be a witness to the redemption of Jesus Christ? That's your call in your family. Not to be afraid, but to trust in Jesus Christ. Comfort ye. Comfort ye, my people. Speak tenderly. The end of the reading, after Anne, when Anne stopped reading, there's more that follows that he's going to gently carry us like a shepherd carries his young, the sheep in his care. Comfort. Comfort my people. Even though the redemption can seem long delayed, God is with us. This salvation will be fulfilled. So we're going to take communion now. And as we take communion, this, as you gather for communion, even if it only takes a few minutes or you have a more elaborate service or whatever, this is the reminder of, of communion. Jesus Christ took bread in the upper room before his crucifixion. He took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. He took the cup. He identified the cup as his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. So that this taking is a declaration of our own trust in Jesus Christ. We always say, who's, who's welcome to take this? We say, whether you take this or not, you shouldn't feel like a second-class citizen in the church. Even if you don't believe, that's fine. You don't have to take it. But it is for anyone who knows Jesus or wants to know Jesus, then you're welcome to take this bread and this cup. And as you take it, it's not only a declaration of your faith. I trust in you, Lord Jesus. It's a declaration of your hope for the world. This defines the way things are. He's given himself. He's given himself for, the, for our salvation, for his love for this earth. So I'm going to pray for communion, and uh, we'll pass it out, and you can just take it as you receive it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we're reminded again that on the night that you were betrayed, our scriptures say, on the night that you were betrayed, you were betrayed unto your own death on this earth. And on that night, you took bread and broke it and gave it even to your betrayer and said, this is my body given for you. Let us take this and declare our faith in you and declare the hope that's in you. Let us take this cup as we receive it, the blood of Jesus Christ, poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, that we could see hope for our lives and for this world, that you are compassionate and forgiving. May we put our trust in you. We pray a blessing on this communion in Jesus' name. Amen.